Poverty often means less access to good health care and therefore worse outcomes than those of the wealthy. Now the National Cancer Institute, part of the National Institutes of Health, has awarded $50 million in grants to establish five new organizations devoted to cancer prevention and care. We get details now from the Senior Advisor for Health Disparities, Shoba Srinivasan. Dr. Srinivasan, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Well, let's begin with these centers. First of all, what will they do and where will they be located? So there are five centers that NCI is funding, and these centers are located in different states, so many of them are working across many other states. There is one in Texas at MD Anderson Cancer Center. One is located at University of Alabama. Another one at Stanford, which is working with University of San Francisco, and University of California, Davis. And there's one at Utah, at Huntsman Cancer Center, that's working with Montana State. And there's one in New York uh, with Cornell and Columbia working together on another project. And the problem they're trying to solve is what exactly? They are trying to address the contextual issues of poverty, which cause pretty dramatic health disparities and uh, quite bad health outcomes as it relates to cancer and other health issues. And what is the mechanism? You say contextual causes. That means as a result of people being impoverished? We talk about social determinants of health. These are the places where people live, work, are born into, and live their entire life. And these are the institutions of society that can be changed. And there is more emphasis on the social determinants which are from education to housing to income inequality to discrimination to kind of like fair wages to our healthcare services, which are not easily available to everybody and equitably available. So these will look at some of these institutional factors. We're not able to look at all of them together at the same time. We look at some of them and see how they affect health. And what do we know about cancer for the people that are impoverished or live in areas, about the causes of them? Because your income necessarily doesn't cause cancer, but there are there environmental factors? Or is the issue more not getting or contracting cancer, but getting care for it that you might be getting in wealthy areas? Oh, that's a very good question. But in cancer, I would like to start with prevention. You know, as they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So in prevention itself and accessing prevention services, we have to make them much more embedded within the system. It has to start from childhood. You cannot offer only services at certain points in time, but it is a mentality that it has to be educated. You have to have good housing for that, and you have to have a family set up and a social network set up that provides that kind of support to give you the best of prevention abilities and facilities. So if you're talking about prevention at a later stage, like, say, breast cancer or colorectal cancer for which they are screening, it is something which we have to build into the system. And then if you do happen to get cancer because of genetic factors and because of environmental degradation and kind of other phenotypical issues, we do need to ensure that people have access to care as much or as good as everybody else. 
And there is another part of HHS far removed from, you know, the NCI and the NIH, and that's called the Health Resources and Services Administration, which oversees pretty well-equipped clinics throughout the nation for people that are otherwise underserved by health care. Is there any chance or thought of coordinating with them to help the Actually, people they serve? Yes, actually, some of these are working with FQHCs, which is federally qualified health centers and primary care clinics and community clinics, which work in these impoverished areas. But also, we have to understand that these clinics are not easily accessible to people everywhere. Like if you live on reservations, um, you have to travel a long distance to get the care that you need. Or if you live in rural areas, then, you know, your distances that you travel for this kind of care is quite a bit. So transportation issues, child care issues, you know, all these issues will come into play, right? Whether you can even get time off of work to go and get the care that you need. And then how much do you have to pay out of pocket for the kind of care that you're going to get? That becomes a very big issue. We're speaking with Dr. Shobha Srinivasan, Senior Advisor for Health Disparities in the Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences at the National Cancer Institute. And getting back to these five centers that will look at all these things, these are primarily research centers? Or what will their specific tasks be and what are you looking for as outcomes from these $50 million worth of centers? So these are primarily research centers. However, They are working with the community in trying to implement intervention programs that will affect their daily lives and also help address some of the contextual issues. For example, there are projects that are looking at nutrition and physical activity and how to change the built environment so as to make it more plausible and easier for people to undertake physical activity and also find the foods that are nutritious and are of value for their health. So these kinds of programs will help them in the long run, at least to improve their health and that way improve cancer outcomes. Or in another state, in California, they're testing out a guaranteed basic income program. So the project is trying to build off of that and see, does that really affect health outcomes? And does that, for example, affect colorectal cancer outcome, which is a highly screenable, avoidable, treatable disease? And so how will you measure the effectiveness of what the centers are doing? That's a very good question. So poverty and looking at social determinants of health, this has been a very long-running issue. These centers are only funded for a very short while, for five years. So this is just a drop in the ocean, a starting point for us to understand if, in fact, we change some of these institutional or structural factors, how can we affect the health of people in the long run? So this is just the beginning. So it is just implementing these programs, looking at how they can be implemented with the community. And in working with the community, can we make them sustainable? So there is a generational impact on it. After all, persistent poverty is a generational measure, meaning people in these areas have lived in poverty over 30 years. So we are just starting in cancer to look at these factors and implement changes at that level. 
And it sounds like maybe in the course of the research, some of the people in these areas affected just might get sensitized to factors that can affect their lives, such as improving diet, you know, for the colorectal area or not smoking or giving up smoking, that kind of thing. Yeah, what is actually more important than sensitizing even people, which I think is very important, is also trying to influence local policy with the kind of information, the research that they are doing to show how these kinds of changes positively impact health. So that way we can have local programs, community-based programs, rather than just individual-based programs, which can affect the health of the entire community. So bring everybody along. And by the way, the centers, will they look at some of the environmental factors that are known to cause increases in cancer incidences, chemicals in the water supplies and that kind of thing, smoke, you know, pollution in the air and so on? These centers are not specifically focused on it. However, we do have pilot projects within these centers, which these centers can define depending on what the community sees as important. And if water quality is one of the issues, for example, then that could be a project that these centers could take up with the community partners to address those issues. And that is the beauty of these projects, to kind of build on what we know, but also add as we go along to areas of research that we don't know too much about and which need to be addressed. Dr. Shobha Srinivasan is Senior Advisor for Health Disparities in the Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences at the National Cancer Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981 and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. 
Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. 
And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief, and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. 
Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.